Welcome to Bible study. This is Nick Krita, your host. I'm very happy to be with you again and happy to have you with us. And uh, today we have a very interesting uh, Bible study. I would like to encourage you to take a pen and a piece of paper if you like to put down some verses which we'll share with you today. Because I believe it's a very important uh, Bible study. We are going to talk about uh, unity in faith. May God be with you as uh, we go through this study today. I would like to just um, welcome our panel. Thank you, Helen, for uh, coming with us uh, today. Thank you, Nick. It's a delight to be here. And Ken, thank you also for being able to come and share your thoughts on this Bible study. Always a pleasure, Nick, to be here. Helen, thank you for preparing this uh, study today. And um, as a facilitator, I will just hand it right to you now. Okay. Hello, listeners. You can't see it, but I saw the smiles on the faces of the others as they introduced themselves. The study we're doing today is the eighth in a series about unity. And today, as Nick already announced, we're talking about unity of faith. Just to revise, last week we considered the topic of what happens, especially in a Christian community, when conflicts occur. The early Christian church had conflicts of ethnic discrimination, entry of non-Jews who they called Gentiles into the fellowship of faith, problems regarding food offered to idols, and also about circumcision. But with open communication, with the guidance and influence of the Holy Spirit, and with an attitude of tolerance, those problems were solved and unity was restored. The experience of the early church provides an example for us in this day and age to also have harmony and unity in our churches. Did you know that there are now more than 30,000 Protestant churches in the world? Generally, the main differences are doctrinal, and often those differences exist because groups interpret the truths of the Bible differently and, or, when only certain doctrinal teachings of the Bible are accepted. Today's study, called Unity in Faith, looks at some major Bible teachings. And before we go any further... We're going to have a little prayer, and Ken has volunteered to pray for us. Thank you, Ken. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we are so blessed to be here today to share your word, Lord God, and to open your word, Lord God, to the many people that are listening. We pray, Heavenly Father, for each and every one out there that the Holy Spirit will work in their heart and their mind, give them guidance and understanding, and help them, Lord God, to search the Scriptures and seek Jesus as he is seeking them. We just pray, Lord God, that the Holy Spirit will be with them all, Lord God, open their ears and help them, Lord God, to understand the exciting things we are sharing with them. In the name of Jesus, amen. All right. Thank you, Ken. Well, as I said before, we're going to look at some of the major Bible teachings. And the first one today is about salvation. Helen, what is the principal teaching accepted by practically all Protestants? 
I believe it's salvation in Jesus. Yes, it is. Yes. That's what makes a Protestant a Protestant. That's exactly right. Apart from the protest against the Catholic Church Mm. that occurred many, many years ago. Helen, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, what did the Apostle Peter proclaim in Acts chapter 4, verses 8 to 12? Okay, I'd like to read that, if that's fine with everybody. I'm reading from the New King James Version. Acts 4, 8 to 12, it said, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, If we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well? Let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is a stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I think it's it's important to note, number one, that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit when he said those words. We spoke last week about the cornerstone being Jesus, that the cornerstone holds up the two walls that keeps it in place. But I think verse 12 sums it up very well, Len, when it said, nor is there salvation in any other. There is no other name under heaven at all that's given among men by which we must be saved. So you can't buy your way there? No, absolutely not. You cannot work your way there either. What about good deeds? No, I'm sorry. It is only through Jesus completely. All right. Absolutely. Salvation through him. And that is a foundational belief. Yes. Nick, there was another occasion when Peter was talking to the people and uh, we can hear what he said and it's recorded in Acts chapter 10, verse 43. What did Peter say there? Let me read this uh, verse also. To him all the prophets witness that through his name whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. Okay, so what Peter said there was that the Old Testament prophets, and we won't be looking at all these prophecies, and there are more than 350, I should let you know, of prophecies about Jesus as the Messiah. And uh, those prophecies were about Jesus, and we could only be saved through him. Ken, in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 2, it talks about an atoning sacrifice. Would you read that verse? And then we'll talk about that later. Uh, again, I'm reading from the King James Version and uh, chapter 2. And he is the substitution for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. So it's talking about Jesus making a substitution or a substitutionary sacrifice. Well, we know that Jesus made that sacrifice. And how was that carried out? That sacrifice was when Jesus was put on the cross and died for our sins. Yes, we didn't have to die for our sins. He did it for us. He certainly did. 
One of my favourite authors uh, wrote a quote that I read, and I just love this quote, and I think you may know it. It's called, Christ was treated as we deserve, that we might be treated as he deserves. He was condemned for our sins, in which he had no share, that we might be justified by his righteousness, in which we had no share. He suffered the death, which was ours, that we might receive the life, which was his. Mm. A beautiful quote. Yes, it is. Substitutory mm. sacrifice, as you said. Yes. And some people mightn't understand this too well, but um, we don't really have that much time to go into it today, but I'll briefly try to cover it. Many years ago, when people tried to settle their differences, and this happened especially in France and to some degree in England, uh, there would be a duel called and it would be either with fighting with swords or pistols, and I think of it especially as pistols. And so person A wants to fight person B over whatever issue they're fighting about, and they take so many steps away from each other, and then on a certain count they turn and fire, and, well, if one drops dead, he's lost. But some of them weren't prepared to take that risk. And so what they would do is they would hire somebody, to be a second and that second would actually stand in the place of the actual person who had the disagreement and so they would do the same thing and if one of them dropped dead well he didn't get paid did he maybe his family would but and the the second acted as a substitute for the other one now helen in first john 4 verses 10 and 11 it talks about how we should feel in regard to Jesus making that sacrifice for us. Yes, okay. First John four ten and 11 says, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. That word propitiation, I think, is, is important just to explain. It actually means the atoning sacrifice. Mm. And so the result, when we realise what's been done for us, that that same feeling, that same um, duty is the wrong word, but I can't think of the right word at the moment, that same appreciation should come to us that we love each other. Yeah, I'm, I'm reminded of the first letter of the word love. It comes down as, you know, vertical. So that's love coming to us from God, and then it goes out horizontal, that L, and that love then flows out to others. I like it. Yeah, I think it's a good way to remember. Really good. Mm. So here is the first key teaching, is the teaching about salvation. Now, another key Bible teaching is the, about the second coming of Jesus. In Acts chapter 1, verses 11, the angels spoke to the disciples who were watching Jesus go up into heaven. Helen, would you read that and just perhaps elaborate a little bit? Acts 1, verse 11, I, I was thinking about this recently and I thought, I wonder how they actually felt right at that moment i know i haven't quite answered it yet and i'll read it in just a moment but there they were they were you know jesus had spoken to them and they watched him actually go i mean i could imagine they had their mouths open 
I would have. <laughs> but it says here uh, in verse 11, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. In other words, they saw him go visibly. Yeah. They saw him. They heard him. They saw him. So I believe this is a clue as to how Jesus is going to come again. Yeah. It will be visible. Yes. And they will, they will hear. You know, the senses will be there. Yeah. Yeah. So it would be a visible appearing. Absolutely. Mm. I believe so. Yes. Now, to add to that, Nick, in Matthew chapter 24, verses 26 and 27... Apostle Matthew also described Jesus' return. Would you read that and then perhaps summarize it? Sure. Um, just before that, Len, uh, just to add uh, to what uh, Helen just said, very nicely pointed out that will be visible, audible, but even more than that, glorious. Oh, I mean. You know, as uh, King of Kings and as Lord of Lords, what that means to me means that. Is not coming, you know, just obscure. Mm. And uh, just some people may see him. And these verses, Len uh, says this in, um, in Matthew 24 from verse 26. Therefore, if they say to you, look, he is in the desert, do not go out. Or look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west so also will be the coming of the son of man and what uh, uh, really attract attention is that from the east to the west didn't say from north to south mm-hmm. why is that because you know as go around you know from the east to the west everyone shall see him Mm-hmm. It's interesting. We don't have time to just uh, go a little bit in that uh, very particular thing. But, yeah, I thought it's, it's very important uh, that the Bible is very precisely in describing uh, the second coming of mm. Jesus Christ, mm. our Lord. Mm. Yes, you could ask the question, where does East start? Yes. And where does it end mm. and so on? Yes, Helen. Can I just add a note here that what we are doing today is not just for knowledge, Because what we're talking about needs to be internalized and it needs to lead to a change in our behavior. And it's no use just knowing that Jesus is coming soon if that knowledge doesn't actually change us in the way that we live or cause us to prepare for his Mm. coming. So I think we need to keep that in mind as we're going through. It's not just about the knowledge in the head. We need to take it in internally so it has an impact on our life today. I think, mm-hmm. Helen, that, that is so true. We, I think many Christians today, they have perhaps uh, gone into a, a sleep mode or a, a relaxed mode and thinking, uh, well, the Lord's return is a long way away and so we don't have to worry. But as the Bible continually points out is we have to be ready for Jesus' coming and that means putting on the uh, nature of Jesus himself. All right. Okay. Well, I like that mm. what you were saying. It's not just a head knowledge, no. it has to impact one's life. Yes. In other words, it's a heart knowledge too. He's coming, he's on his way. All right, mm. so in Acts, we heard that Jesus will come visibly. From Matthew, we heard that Jesus will be coming spectacularly with a lot of light as the lightning that completely fills the sky. Jesus will come now, Ken. 
In First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, it mentions something else about the return of Jesus. What, what does it say? Would you read that? First Thessalonians 4, sure. 16 and 17. Okay, starting at 16. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we, which are alive and remain, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Now, I think this is very interesting for a number of reasons. I think a lot of people believe when Jesus comes back, he's coming to the earth, but the Bible clearly tells us he's not. He will be in the air, and all the Christians who have got the Holy Spirit will be called up to meet him in the air. Well, now... So far, we've heard that the coming of Jesus will be visible. It'll be brilliant, with bright light. There'll be loud sounds, the trump of God. And there'll be graves opened where the dead saints will be raised. I want to read another text. This one is from Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, which says, Look, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. So that says quite clearly that people will see Jesus coming. A person who's expecting, waiting for, and got their life in order, expecting the return of Jesus, what do you call such a person, Helen? Well, it's interesting. You said people that are expecting. There are people expecting at this time of the year they get calendars called the Advent calendar because they are looking towards what people call as Christmas and they're marking it off. Advent means something that is actually coming, one who is waiting for that coming. And in this reference that we're talking about today, we are waiting for the appearance of Christ. So the word Adventist... Um, in a group of people means that they are a group that is waiting for the coming of Christ. So I want to ask you a question. Are you an Adventist? Absolutely. What about you, Ken? Are you an Adventist? Absolutely. I can't wait for the return of Jesus. And Nick, what about you? Yeah. All right. Well, I am too. But well, we're united. That's great. <laughs> in faith. Of course, there are people who believe in a secret rapture that people will be whisked off to heaven they believe, too, that uh, when Jesus comes, seven years after the secret rapture, Jesus will uh, um, establish his kingdom on earth. And there are various Protestant churches who teach that. Do you have any comments about this panel? I think it, it's really amazing, this, because in anything to do with the Lord or God, we really need to start at the truth. The truth is in the Word of God. So if you search out the Scriptures, nowhere in the Scriptures does it say that Jesus is coming on the earth on his return to collect his saints. It clearly states he will be in the air and they will be called up to meet him in the air and return to heaven for a period of time. Okay. Another thing which I would like to point out is that um, because of these differences uh, in doctrines, you know, people try to say all sorts of things, and I would like to point one thing. Because the Bible says that no one knows when Jesus comes, 
the Bible gives us a good report of how Jesus will come, in which manner, but not when. I came across some people who told me that Jesus came on this earth, you know, back in 1914, for example, or others will say other dates and other dates, um, saying that Jesus took away a portion of the people, you know, those ones which he found, uh, you know, worthy or talking about 144,000 and so on. You see, these are speculations. And when you don't look down deep in the Bible, you can be easily sidetracked by some of the teachings because in the Bible, you know, you need to compare scripture with scripture to understand the whole context of the event, in this case, the second coming of Jesus Christ. And I just want to point out that uh, that nobody knows because we are tempted to set up dates. And interesting, I will just uh, um, mention this. Uh, not only do we not know when Christ is coming back, we have been told that we do not know. And another thing I would like to say that at the end of his ministry, Jesus told the parable of the ten virgins. And in order to illustrate the experience of the church as it awaits his second coming, the two groups of virgins represent the two types of believers who profess to be waiting for Jesus. Some of them were superficially prepared for that event, but some of them, they were prepared and even if Jesus was going to uh, delay his coming, they were still waiting and prepared. Now, Christianity today, I heard about from many groups that we are not going to say that Jesus is coming soon. Or, uh, uh, you know, we, are, we know that Jesus will come sometime, but doesn't matter when. I will disagree with that. Because the disciples were told, and they believe in the blessed hope, that Jesus would come even in their time, even though Jesus didn't come in their uh, lifetime, but they were prepared like that. And we need to be in the same position to await for the second coming of Jesus as it may happen today. Yeah. Nick, there's a, if I could just quickly run a couple of points through that what you said. One is, it's true, none of us know, and the Bible clearly makes it uh, apparent that uh, we will not know. However, it does tell us that when you see certain signs coming in the earth, know that it is very, very close, it's even at the door. But secondly, what's even more important, I believe, for people out there who may be thinking, well, yeah, look, I'll look into this one day or, or maybe next week or something like this, you're assuming you're going to be here next week or next month or next year. If, on, in, in the fortunate thing, you have an accident and you lose your life, will you be with the Lord or not? You have to be prepared and get ready today, not tomorrow. I just wanted to clarify, or not clarify, to also agree with, with Nick that the Bible does state that no one knows it. But I'd like to say uh, the Bible text that that's found in, because that's not just our thoughts. Matthew twenty four thirty six says, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Mm. Just wanted to back that up, Nick, if you don't mind. Okay, well, no one knows when Jesus will no. come, but they will know when he has come. Mm. And I think also Ken was quite correct that we can see the signs yes. of his coming. So. Okay, and yes. this secret rapture business, I'm 
not very happy with that teaching. Anyhow, we've been talking about salvation through Jesus. We've been talking about the second coming of Jesus and we've given texts to back up what we're saying. Now the third teaching in which we should be finding unity is the teaching about the heavenly sanctuary. Now Ken, when Jesus left the earth, where did he go? Uh, he went back to heaven. Have you got any uh, biblical support for that? Uh, yes, we certainly do. It's uh, all throughout the Bible. Looking at uh, Acts 1 and verse 11, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus which is taken up from you into heaven shall also come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. So there are three times heaven is mentioned. This is where Jesus is going, and that's where he is today at the moment. Yeah. Can you give us another text to support that? Yes, just in Hebrews. Just let me find this one. Okay, Hebrews 9 and 24. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but also into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. So again, it clearly states that Jesus is in heaven. Okay. Oh, probably most people accept that Jesus in, is in heaven. But Helen, what does Jesus do, or what is he doing, perhaps I should say, in heaven? Okay, well I'd like to start by quoting one of my favourite texts, 1 John 1 verse 9, and it says, If, and that's an important word, yeah. if we confess, in other words, if we acknowledge or admit that we are sinners in need of, of mercy, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Praise God. Yes. It doesn't matter what we've done in the past. Amen. It doesn't even matter what you did this morning. It is important that you come to him, you confess, and his promise, his guarantee is that he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that brings me to, to another text. And um, the text is over here in Hebrews 9, 12 to 15, which answers your question as to what is Jesus doing. It's um, talking about the heavenly sanctuary, but relating it to the earthly sanctuary, which um, Moses was instructed to build out there in the wilderness. And it says here in verses 12 to 15, Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Mm. So Jesus is literally taking on the, on the role of our high priest, our mediator before God. Yes. And, and that's, uh, that's just, that's huge when you even just think about it. Yeah. Mm. Um, it's perhaps a little bit hard to have a mental picture of what Jesus is doing, but I see it a bit like this. When we are convicted of our sin, our conscience troubles us, and so we ask for forgiveness. We pray to ask for forgiveness. 
and maybe God the Father says, well, on what ground should I forgive this person? What have they done? And Jesus holds up his scarred hands and says, Father, I did it for them. Amen. Forgive them because I did it for them. Yes. Thank you, Lynn. I think, um, Leon, I'd just like to add to that uh, a point that uh, Helen brought up earlier on, which is scriptural. No matter what your sins are, no matter how deep they are, no matter how bad they are, Christ will forgive you. You only have to talk to him about it and repent and ask him for forgiveness and you will be forgiven. Yeah, that text that Helen read in 1 John 1, yeah. 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Yes, Nick? I was also going to point out that uh, as Helen was uh, talking about uh, the ministry of Jesus in heaven and um, how we can come boldly to him every day, not just uh, once a year as it was in the olden days, you know, at the tabernacle there. But imagine if we will be living once saved, always saved, then we don't need uh, Jesus in the heavenly sanctuary. Mm. But because we believe that we are sinners and we may even commit a sin today, in this morning, in this afternoon, how wonderful it is to know that we have the high priest, the one who is in heaven, in the most holy place, pleading with his own blood before mm. the Father us to be forgiven. I think this is a tremendous mm. uh, important doctrine and teaching of the Bible and not many people are looking upon this thing about the sanctuary and we're going to look probably even to some further texts to to prove and to support uh, uh, the importance of the ministry of Jesus in a heavenly sanctuary now Nick use the expression high priest and that's supported by Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 11 and if you um, read what happened in the earthly sanctuary, the high priest was, his job was a job of cleansing, acting on behalf of the people to cleanse them from sin and then once a year cleansing the sanctuary. Yes, Helen? Uh, I was just going to add what Nick was saying, that yes, Jesus is the high priest, but the beautiful part about it is that he came to earth as a baby. Mm. He lived a life on this earth right through the teen years and, and the adulthood before he died on that cross. He has the right as a high priest to be able to mediate for us. He understands us from the time we're born mm. right the way through. And I think as people are thinking of you know December particularly, that it's worth them thinking about... Why did he come as a baby? Yeah. He could have come in a high priest. He could have come as a king. And, and he could have come as an adult, but he didn't. He came as a baby, and everyone can relate to him because he understands. That was part of his role also as a high priest. Yes, that's right. Yeah. You know, I've been to a um, service in a different church where the people were having um, mass or communion, and people had to file down the front and the priest put on their tongue a wafer which is a little bit like um, a potato chip but not quite like that <laughs> those of you who've 
experienced this from what I'm talking about. And when the priest does that, he says just a couple of words. He says, the body of Christ. And the people are taught to believe that as that wafer goes down into their stomach, it actually turns into the literal body of Christ, which basically means that each time this happens, Christ is being crucified over and over again. Ken, in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 25 to 28, what does the Bible say there about this sacrifice that was made? Okay, reading from 25. Nor ye that he should offer himself often as the high priest entered into the holy place every year with the blood of others, for they must be often have suffered since the foundation of the world, but now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after that the judgment. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins for, of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. So how many times does Jesus need to be crucified in order to save us from our sins? Well, he's only crucified once. We don't need to do it all the time. Well, what about he died for you? Didn't he have to die separately for me? No, he died once for everybody. Not everybody that was alive then, not everybody that was alive afterwards, but everybody from the beginning of time until the very end of time, he died for us all. Okay. Then, and I just want to mention about the Day of Atonement, which um, happened in the olden days, once a year, as was pointed out. And we are also understanding that Jesus is doing the same thing, but he doesn't need to come every year with the blood in the most holy place. Because once for all, as we understand, he is pleading with his blood. Now, also very important is that Jesus is fulfilling both phases, which were described even in the earthly tabernacle or earthly sanctuary he's doing the same thing in heavenly sanctuary he's coming there if you like in the holy place uh, with the repentance of people through the blood of Jesus Christ we, we are going to to be forgiven and Jesus is going in the most holy place and this happens all the time we can have difficulties if we just take away the symbols which were on the earthly sanctuary but that's why God gave Moses that earthly example to understand how the process of salvation is taking place I agree with you again Nick as the earthly sanctuary had two phases of min priestly ministry the first of there was a daily basis in the holy place and then once a year in the most holy place the scriptures also describe as you mentioned these two phases of Jesus ministry in heaven his ministry in the holy place in heaven is characterized by intercession forgiveness reconciliation and restoration repentant sinners have immediate access to the father through Jesus the mediator that's good news since 1844 Jesus ministry in the most holy place it deals with the aspects of judgment and cleansing that were done once a year on the day of atonement and the ministry 
of cleansing the sanctuary is also is based on Jesus' shed blood. The atonement performed on that day foreshadowed the final application of the merits of Christ to remove the presence of sin and to accomplish the complete reconciliation of the universe into one harmonious government under God. The doctrine of this two-faced ministry is actually unique. Uh, It's a unique Adventist contribution to the understanding of the entire plan of salvation. As an Adventist, yes, we study, we have studied the sanctuary in Leviticus and we can see it shows about salvation. It's a plan of salvation. And now, of course, we can see with our study today, we're dealing with the heavenly sanctuary and, and Jesus' position and what it means for us with the intercession, the forgiveness, the reconciliation and the restoration. Well said, Helen. Okay. All right. Well, so far we've talked about the teaching of salvation through Jesus. We've spoken about the second coming of Jesus. We've been talking about the heavenly sanctuary where Jesus is currently involved in forgiveness and so on. Now we come to the fourth biblical teaching about the Sabbath. Ken, when was the Sabbath instituted? Well, then this was way at the beginning of time, so we're reading here from uh, Genesis 2 and verse 2 to 3 and on the seventh day God ended his work which he had made and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made and God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in that he had rested from all his work which God created and had made so we clearly see here that the Sabbath was instituted way when God made the world. All right, right back at creation. Now, some people say, well, the Sabbath was only for the Jews. How many Jews were around back then? Uh, None that we're aware of. (laughs) All right, Helen, this question's actually answered further in the book of Mark, chapters 2, verses 27 and 28. Okay, love to read that. Um, And he, we're talking about Jesus here, he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. I I think it's it's important to realize that this is actually telling us the meaning of the Sabbath was for mankind, all of mankind, and Christ's own lordship over the Sabbath as well. Mm. So it doesn't say the Sabbath was made for the Jews. No, it does not. It says Sabbath was made for man or mankind now can any of you tell me of any biblical verse any biblical teaching that the sabbath was shifted from the seventh day of the week to sunday the first day of the week well i for one have not found one i was not brought up keeping the um, bible sabbath the seventh day of the week i used to keep sunday and um because that was what we always did it was a tradition but I thought that was the correct day until I started studying this very topic. And um, I guess, I mean, I know others have gone into the Bible to prove it wrong that Sunday has been um, commemorated now by God as as the true Sabbath. But you can't find it. I'm sorry, it is not there. It's not there. It's not there. And Helen, I'd like to add to that too, that when I was younger, I was brought up in the Presbyterian Church, and we attended church on Sunday, but of course I never read the Bible, and it was only many, many years later that uh, I did start to read the Bible and look into things, 
and then I came across a DVD that a friend gave me on the Sabbath, and that clearly proved from Scripture that Saturday is the day of the Lord. It is the day of the Sabbath. Okay, we could go into this a lot more, but time is starting to run short. So, Nick, why did God institute the Sabbath? What was the purpose behind it? Len, that's a very good question, and uh, I'm going to read um, a couple of verses from um, Exodus chapter 20 and from verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do not work, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and he rested in the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed. Few points here to make, Len. First of all, in this fourth commandment, which people are, are just, you know, simplifying so much, and I, I look into some translations saying that just to rest on the Sabbath day. That's all, nothing else. But God mm-hmm. is pointing out few things here. First of all, says, remember the Sabbath day. Sabbath means only, if you use the word Sabbath, it's rest. That's true. But God goes further and says that he's the creator in the sixth day and in the seventh day he rested. And then is the only day in the Bible which God says that he blessed and sanctified it, set it apart for a purpose of worship. And that's why in this commandment, if you look in the fourth commandment, God is described that he's the creator and the sustainer of all things. It's wonderful to know this, and I came across just recently with some people talking about, uh, wanted to learn more about the Sabbath. Because as Helen pointed out, Christians tend to believe and accept more that we keep Sunday as a holy day because of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus and because we are saved through his uh, resurrection. Otherwise, if Jesus wouldn't resurrect, wouldn't be, what was the point of salvation? But that's not the point of the, the study for today. The point of the study today, I want to just bring it a little bit together here. We are talking about unity in faith. And many people will say, you know, huh? that doesn't really matter which day you rest or worship the Lord as long as you worship the Lord in a day and keep a day holy but that's not the purpose of God when he talks about Sabbath Sabbath is a specific mm. time in in the Bible and God wants us to really follow uh, the teaching of the Bible in that respect okay. now you mentioned one of the main themes mm. for the uh, Sabbath to commemorate with the fact that God is the creator Helen what's the other one Okay, just before I say that, let me tell you that the Sabbath is a special gift. Mm-hmm. It is a beautiful day. Nick mentioned rest. It doesn't mean you go to bed and sleep all day. It's a time for rest, refocusing, and remember. But yes, what do we remember? The first one that Nick mentioned was the creation and um, that God is the creator. The second one, let me just read Deuteronomy 5.15. And it says, and remember, here we go, that word again, remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out from there by a mighty hand 
by an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Why? Because he delivered them. Mm. But he didn't just deliver the Jews. He delivers us and has delivered us. You know, as we talked about the different texts we've talked about today. So there are the two great themes of the Sabbath commandment. Let me also make a mention that to observe a regular time of rest and worship, um, that's in our fast-paced world we need it but it also demonstrates how important God is to us and it refreshes us spiritually how important is God to you are you willing he, he just said here it was a command mm. are you willing to give that time to him well I certainly want to and I just love it just yeah, love well, it. I guess most people say yes God will um, keep all the other commandments we, we think you've made a mistake there we're going to say no to that one well, that's not the attitude to have. Now, I've heard a lot of people comment about the Sabbath, and they say it was the Lord's Day because Jesus rose from the dead on that day. Ken, is the Sabbath the Lord's Day? Just reading here from uh, Mark 2 and verse 28, it's therefore the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. So if he's the Lord of the Sabbath, it's the Lord's Day. Is there another text to back that up? Okay, here we are in Isaiah 58 and verse 13. If thou turn away thy foot from the Sabbath, from doing thy pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy of the Lord, honor, honorable, and shall honor him, not doing thine own ways, nor finding thine own pleasure, nor speaking thine own words. Okay, that's enough. Thank you, Ken. Here, uh, the Lord speaking, and he says, this is my day. So the Lord's day is not Sunday. The Lord's day is Sabbath, the day that he rested, the day that he gave us. I, I just wanted to make a note here that in our desire to follow Jesus' example, um, which comes out in Luke, Seventh-day Adventists observe the Seventh-day Sabbath. Jesus' participation in Sabbath services reveals that he endorsed it as a day of rest and worship. And some of his miracles, they were done on the Sabbath in order to teach the dimension of healing, both physical and spiritual. That comes from the celebration of the Sabbath. The apostles, the early Christians, they understood that Jesus had not abolished the Sabbath. They themselves kept it as well and attended worship on that day. So let me go back to the first statement that I said Seventh-day Adventists. Part of their name is Seventh-day. They keep mm. the Bible Sabbath and I am proud to say that God gave me the light that I follow him and I am a Seventh-day Adventist yes, Christian. And because we mentioned about Lord's Day and uh, connecting that with the Sabbath, do you think that uh, the enemy will have uh, a day also? Oh, yes. Do you reckon that, uh, you know how Satan is trying to contrafit all the time what God is teaching, you know, the, the truth? And he will have a day who will like to be kept and... Uh, counterfeit. Yeah, it's a counterfeit. And it's, it's interesting because we don't want to say that people are um, uh, worshipping Satan because they're keeping a different day than the seventh day. But in fact, that's what uh, the Bible implies. Because if you don't worship the Lord in the holy day as he set aside, then automatically we worship uh, the enemy. 
I think, Nick, the other thing about that, and we haven't got time to go into it today, but if you really search the scriptures and search history, you'll see that Sunday was originally the worship of the sun god, and it was changed to confuse Christians. Okay. All right. Well, now, we have a fifth key biblical teaching, and that's about death and resurrection. And I just want to say a bit before we start here. There are a lot of people who claim that when someone dies, they go straight to heaven, or, if they're bad, they go straight to hell. If they do that, that means they are immortal. But who's who does the Bible say is immortal, Nick, and where does it say it? Just before that verse, uh, Len, uh, verse 16 from uh, 1 Timothy, it's interesting that verse 15 talks about the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be the honor and everlasting power. So who is immortality? God. God. And God alone. And God alone, yes, Mm. because when these people say that when someone dies they go to heaven or hell and they keep on existing, well, that's immortality. But it goes, if we go back the other way, Ken, when man was created, where did life come from? Well, it tells us here in Genesis 2 and verse 7, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became, and this is the key word, a living soul. So um, the Bible's quite clear to say where a person got their life from. They didn't have it before creation because if they did, they would have already been immortal. So, Helen, Mm -hmm. when do people receive immortality? And if you could quote the verses, please, because the listeners might not like to hear it. Okay, uh, James four fourteen and 15 is one of the verses that, um, that talks on this subject. Uh, do human beings receive or have immortality at birth? If we look at this, the instruction is don't, bo- don't boast about tomorrow. And when I read this, I thought, okay, now why would that be? It says, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapour that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. And, and I just find that interesting to think, well, it is only a vapour. We are, we're not an immortal soul. It's a breath, it's a vapour. But then, when I, I looked into 1 Corinthians 15, 51 to 54, and I'd like to read that. Have we got time for me to read that? Yes. Okay. Um, I was thinking, all right, so when do actually human beings receive this immortality? And when I read this, it's very clear. And let me say again, it's 1 Corinthians 15, 51 to 54, and it says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment. 
in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed for this corruptible must put on incorruption this mortal must put on immortality so when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written death is swallowed up in victory to me that's very very clear that passage stating of course that at that point we will put off the mortality and we will then receive immortality mm. i don't see that as reading that we will get it at birth or through our life or because we're good or anything like that to me it tells me that when the lord comes and he grants that to us that's right and that's what the bible teaches it does not teach that we go on living in another no. state, in another place, after death. Well, Can I just add, too, I think that is such a blessed hope, that text. You know, when you think about the disabilities that people have in this world, they are temporary. Mm. They may not feel temporary, but yes. they are temporary. And, you know, Paul is telling us that we will all be given new bodies when Christ comes. We will be changed, corruptible to incorruptible, mortal to immortality. You know, we shall all be changed. I feel like yelling hallelujah <laughs> yes. because I can't wait for that day. Yes. I think it's just going to be the most blessed day. Absolutely. Well, Ken, Sorry, I get very passionate. Yeah, I'm glad you are, Helen. <laughs> Ken. The Bible tells us what happens when people die. What happens? Len, I think this is a, a really, really important verse. And we're reading from Ecclesiastes 9 and verse 5. For the living know that they shall die, but the dead know not anything. Now, I'll just repeat that a little bit. But the dead know nothing. Neither have they any more a reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. And in verse 6, also their love, their hatred, and their envy is now perished. Neither have they any more a portion forever in anything that is not done unto the Son. And in verse 10, whosoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. For there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave whither thou goest. Mm. So Tim B says... When a person dies, they cease to function. Absolutely. Uh, they, don't, uh, they don't have any thoughts. And some people say that the spirit goes off to heaven. But if the spirit goes off to heaven, there's got to be thoughts. Got to be quick, yes? Very quick. I used to believe that when you died, you either went to heaven or hell. And when I read that statement that, that Ken's just read out, it gave me such a, a hope in my heart to think, you know, when my dad died, he's not there floating around looking down and seeing me when I got hurt or, you know, because he couldn't help me. Mm. And to me, that's not heaven. That's hell. Yeah. To think that when we, we die, we go to sleep until the Lord comes. Blessed hope. Yes. Now, Nick, if people go to heaven, what would be something they would want to do up there? First of all, before that, Len, I just want to mention also Psalm uh, 115, which um, talks about the dead do not praise God. They go down in silence. But if I look in uh, uh, Psalm 119 and just look at verse uh, 17, well, probably I, I probably go on 16 just to, to have a bit of uh, connection there. I will delight myself in your statues, says the psalmist. I will not forget your word. Deal bountifully with your servant that 
I may live and keep your word. If the dead don't praise the Lord and they're up in heaven, well, that seems to be a total um, contradiction. You would think that if the dead are up in heaven, they'll be praising the Lord all the time, but it says the dead do not praise the Lord. Now, I know there are weird beliefs about this, and some say, oh, the spirit's up there and the body's down here. The Bible doesn't say that. It's just um, made-up stuff. How did Jesus describe death, Helen? Ah, well, that's interesting. He actually makes it very, very clear in John 11, 11 to 15, and, um, yeah, it's terribly clear. You know, he had a friend called Lazarus, and um, they came to him and said that Lazarus was dead. And he, instead of saying, well, you know, don't worry about it, this is, this is what he actually says, John eleven eleven to 15. It says, these things he said, and after that he said to them, our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought that he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. So, really, there is no consciousness at all, Mm. at all. And Jesus said, death was asleep. Yeah. Beautiful, beautiful. No consciousness. No. All right, well, look, we've got to wind this up. And I know there are other issues that we would like to cover yet, but you know, listeners, the unity of faith, that is, unity in beliefs and doctrines, can only come from the Bible. And we know that some Christians hold beliefs that are not biblical. In some cases, a web of error is spun around misinterpretation of a Bible text or passage. But like in a jigsaw puzzle, beliefs, that is doctrines, have to fit and they have to be supported by other passages of Scripture. And we hope that you, dear listeners, are wise and don't swallow anything just because it's presented by someone you might admire. So we have to stop now. But uh, Helen... Would you pray for us? Yes. Or pray for the listeners too. Thank you. Surely will. Thank you. Let us pray. Loving Heavenly Father, I pray that the truth about Christ will penetrate our lives, our lives here as a panel, but also each listener, that it will penetrate your life. Deepen our faith in Jesus Christ. Strengthen our commitment to follow him, no matter what the cost. We want to say thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for dying on the cross for us. Thank you. You're coming again very soon. And may not one of us be missing when you come in that clouds of heaven. And may we go home to immortality to live with you forever. I pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, dear listeners, for being with us today. Today we approach a very um, important subject, and we just pointed out about five doctrinal points about our salvation and to be united in this. I will encourage you to look in the Bible, and if you like further Bible study, please don't hesitate to contact us to the numbers which we provide, and we'll be more than happy to sit you know, one-to-one or uh, in, a, in um, different uh, settings where time is not a barrier. Until then, may God bless you and keep walking in the footsteps of Jesus.